ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to these go to 11. Once again, we have Greg Dutcher joining us. Greg, say hello. Hello. Today, our guest, Dave Shive. Dave, say hello to everyone out there. Hello, everyone. Now, Dave, the last time we were uh, speaking with you, you were uh, just about to uh, go overseas on a mission trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, so you're joining us today. How did that go? Well, it was, uh, as always, it's very interesting. I was in Asia for two and a half weeks. And uh, I found it, uh, as always, stimulating and fruitful, uh, hard. Uh, you pr- you don't appreciate home till you are somewhere else, and especially if you get sick somewhere else, you really wish you were home. And I got a little bit sick for a day or so, but uh, it was a good trip. Good, good. Dave, Dave, I think our audience wants the details on your illness. <laughs> Would you like to share that? Uh, can we post pictures? Yeah. To the- <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, it was short-lived. Short-lived, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. We're, we're glad for that yeah. and glad you're, you're home safe. Well, I had to teach about a day when I was under the weather, <clears throat> and that was really hard. But uh, I, don't think that, uh, the, I don't think the people noticed that much, and so made it through. That's excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, once again, we're in June. We're in our Hot Topic Month. Um, and so today Dave is joining us uh, to talk about the Reformed theology, uh, which Dave is not Reformed. Um, and so he is uh, – Dave, what did you say offline? You are just non-Reformed, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not Arminian. Yep, he's not Arminian, but he's not Reformed either. And so we're uh, we're just uh, taking this time. Uh, Greg and Dave have been uh, friends for a long time. Uh, how long has that friendship been? Uh, too long? Yeah, way too long. I mean, I, I'd say five minutes into it, we had a mutual understanding it was too long. <laughs> no, since, um, you know, Dave, I don't even remember, but my friend Jim Bates, who is a uh, PCA pastor in Pennsylvania, I have a lot of PCA friends in Pennsylvania, it's strange, mm-hmm. um, was the, I remember going to his house because you asked me when I was candidating at our former church in Baltimore uh, I was graduating seminary. I had connected to Dave through the Evangelical Free Church. And you said, uh, do you have email? And I had only heard what email was like that week. It was <laughs> April, March of 97. Oh, wow. And I remember going to my friend Jim Bates' house, and he had to show me how to uh, <laughs> do an email. And it was like the most mind-blowing experience yeah. I ever had. Juno that was, AOL. It was Juno. It was Juno. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember the handshaking? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See those sound effects we provided? And uh, I remember sending that, and then I got a what was called a reply from Dave. It was incredible. So that was 97, Dave. So we're coming up, well, 18 years for now. Yeah, yeah. I, I do that math, right? Yeah, 18 years. Yeah. Um, and, and you guys disagree on this theological point, but you still remain friends. Yes. Um, and, you know, it's, it sounds kind of, uh, you know, funny. But in all, in all seriousness, this is part of why we are doing this series. Um, I mean, there are three reasons. One. We want um, our, our viewers to understand that, um, you know, these guys uh, have been friends for this long. They have disagreed on this position for this long um, and and they've remained friends. And so how do we engage with um, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ on this topic uh, and remain cordial, remain friendly about it? Um, secondly, I think it's important to understand this is an intramural debate. I think if we were talking about this in the realm of evangelism, uh, it, it would be set up and it would look completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, that that you know we would all agree that you know um, y- when you're going out and you're preaching the gospel to someone, the, the the emphasis is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Yes. And the nuances of how that happens in terms of from God um, is. is is something that we debate as Christians, sure. not something that uh, we need to go out and explain to an unbeliever in order to receive Christ. Um, and so, you know, we're having this so that uh, hopefully you can learn some things to support your view or so that you can learn some things of how someone else uh, thinks of them differently than you uh, so that you can understand that, um, you know, if you are a non-reformed guy like Dave, you will be able to understand how a reformed guy like Greg 
uh, approaches this topic. If you are a reformed guy like Greg, you will be able to understand how a non-reformed guy like uh, Dave approaches this topic, and you will be able to see those things and have more grace and charity as you discuss and debate these things. Um, and, and when I use the word debate, I realize that that can uh, conjure up all sorts of images, so let me just clarify. When, when we speak about debate, we are talking about um, just uh, – I, I almost view it as as uh, the Proverbs verse, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Mm-hmm. You're coming at this and you are trying to challenge each other's views, but in a loving Christ-like way. Um, and, and understanding that, you know what, you're probably not going to convince the person of your view, but hey, in doing this, they are strengthening me, I'm strengthening them, they're going to the word, and we are uh, encouraging and building each other up, even though we hold these different views. Yes. Um, So we're going to go ahead and we are going to get started Um, as we've been doing in this series all along. uh, We're going to take five minutes for each person to explain their view. Greg, we are going to let you go first as the reformed view and just uh, go ahead and in five minutes and I'll give you your 30 second warning uh, when it comes close to the end. Tell us what the reformed view is. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. And uh, just to say very quickly, it it's an honor, Dave. I mean that. It is an honor to talk about this subject with you. We've talked about it for years, uh, off and on in Double T Diner and, you know, uh, sort of uh, living room settings and all sorts of places. And I, I think I have a fairly good idea where, uh, where Dave comes from, but I always learn something every time, particularly some of the, uh, the weaknesses of the position. I don't give up the position, but I think often the way the reform view is uh, articulated uh, can be well served by honest dialogue. Mm-hmm. Say, hey, that's a good point. I can concede that point. Mm-hmm. Don't feel that I'm losing the entire position. So I hope we we uh, we demonstrate some of that there. On a personal note, I became a Christian when I was 16. As I've mentioned many times, I grew up in a non-believing home, wonderful family, wonderful parents, but had never even been inside of a church outside of one Catholic funeral um, when I was in high school. And so when you've never been to church and your first church is the Cathedral of Mary, our Queen, uh, every other <laughs> church architecturally after that lacks a little something. So to me, that's what a church was. So I, I came at uh, Calvinism through an interesting path. First, I just heard the gospel. My friend Matt Smith, who's been on here many, many times, did exactly what you said, Nathan. He preached to me the, the basic um, you know, essential message of the gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. I struggled with that. It seemed uh, narrow. Uh, it seemed too uh, exclusive. It seemed too dismissive of other "quote unquote" great world religions, etc. But through the grace of God, I came to believe in Christ as my Savior and Lord. And for several years, uh, I probably had no thoughts really on this subject of how a person becomes a Christian, other than just believing on Jesus. Uh, but in terms of election predestination, I don't even know those terms were familiar to me. And when I was in college, I sort of started cutting my theological teeth on John Wesley. I was in a liberal Methodist church mm-hmm. as a young, on-fire believer. I've talked about that before, too. And I realized that what I was hearing in this Methodist church sounded kind of pablum and, and weak and anemic and I started learning, oh, John Wesley founded the Methodist Church. So I started learning about John Wesley, and the dude was a gospel stud. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, rode on horseback. He preached the gospel in England, here in the U.S., had quite a story. And then I heard that Wesley was a big free will theologian, a big uh, what we would call Arminian theologian, that a person chooses to become a Christian. Uh, a, a Christian is chosen on the basis of, of his own choice, something like God looks down the corridors of time, sees the, sees the decision a person would make, and uh, uh, God, as a result of that uh, foreseen decision, chooses that person to be a believer. So I rock and rolled with that for a couple of years. Met a couple of friends that were these strange Calvinists, and I had many, many objections. It seemed unfair, uh, and the position that they presented to me was God in his grace uh, lavishes a large number of people uh, with his saving grace, brings them into the kingdom of God, chooses them sovereignly from the beginning of time, not on the basis of anything that they had done. Um, and when those elect people hear the gospel, as I did when I was 16, um, the Holy Spirit works and makes the offer of the gospel come alive in the heart, uh, 
regenerates that person to new life. That person becomes a Christian because of God's, uh, what some have called irresistible grace, not a term I like, but we'll get into that probably a little bit later. Mm -hmm. Um, so in short, God, uh, chooses and elect from the beginning of time, not on the basis of what they will do in the future, but solely on the basis of his grace and mercy. Why isn't everyone chosen? I'll already put that out there and say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I truly do not know. But I do believe that scripture reveals that God chooses some, does not choose all, uh, to be the recipients of his mercy and his grace. And when the gospel is preached to those people, they come to saving faith in Christ. A lot more to say, but that's the nutshell of the reformed position as I understand it. Okay. Uh, You have about a minute and a half. Anything else on that you wanted to add before we... Yeah, I just saw Jurassic World. (laughs) That thing was awesome. (laughs) And being an older guy, like I could really appreciate it. Like it doesn't, David doesn't freak me out if they say 85 million years ago. I can roll with that. I don't know if they're right, but I can roll with that. Uh, All right, I'm Uh, going to throw the uh, first yellow card up and say we're getting off topic. (laughs) Yeah, I got off topic there. (laughs) Yes, I will say... um, that this doctrine on a personal level, mm-hmm. uh, I had a similar experience to R.C. Sproul, uh, and it actually helped me because I intellectually, cognitively, cognitively converted to Calvinism long before my heart did. Mm-hmm. And I think I've told you this, Dave, in the past. I was in a funk for like a month or two because it almost felt like I had just been completely um, turned inside out. 30 seconds. So I embraced the Calvinistic understanding of salvation, but I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. And I distinctly remember a period of time, several weeks, if not two months, where I, I was, I think I was in a spiritual depression. In time, my heart caught up with my mind and I began to find it uh, incredibly comforting yeah. that God had chosen me a, apart from anything I'd done. Dave? Well, um, my background is uh, I was brought up in a Christian home. Uh, my dad was a graduate of Dallas Seminary, which was uh, the bulwark of evangelicalism of its day. <clears throat> he was not a great student, but he loved the Lord. He was uh, more of an evangelist probably than a pastor. And uh, surprisingly, uh, his first pastorate was in the Reformed Church of America. Interesting. <laughs> Which uh, I had no clue what it meant, and I'm not sure he did either. Uh, it was, a, but it was a liberal denomination, and uh, they, but they'd had a succession of pastors uh, from Dallas Seminary in that church, and so it was kind of an aberration in terms of the the, the uh, denomination itself. I remember once uh, my gym teacher in high school asked me because he knew the church. He said, uh, "Does your church teach election?" And or predestination, he, he might have said. And frankly, I had no clue. And uh, so I said no. <laughs> but I because I'd never heard. My dad never talked about it. Yeah. I went to Bible college and seminary. Uh, I have no recollection of ever of there ever being any discussions about election, predestination. Interesting. Uh, Reformed versus Arminian. I think I might have known the terms Calvinism and Arminian, but I have no recollection of ever discussing those things. And I went out into ministry. And I remember uh, kind of a crossroads event that I had um, where a fellow in our church came, uh, started coming, and he was very Reformed. He wouldn't have breakfast, and he brought a copy of a chapter from Arthur Pink's book. And the chapter was on... Uh, limited atonement or particular redemption, however you want to call it. And he gave it to me to read, and I read it, and I thought, this is the biggest crock. I cannot (laughs) believe anybody actually believes this stuff. (laughs) But I had never thought about it before. And so that kind of launched me on a journey, which uh, led me then over the years to um, look at both sides. I read Sproul and Piper and... um, Others and became more aware of the position, but I also read very voraciously those who didn't agree with that, with that position. I taught in Bible college, and uh, so I've, I had to become more conversant on the subject. So it was it was a long journey for me, but I gradually realized I couldn't embrace a reformed position. 
and uh, and so I have not from this from that point on. And uh, but it was never that I was looking for a platform to shoot it down, and often would avoid it when I preach. People say I've had people actually come up to me after I preach and said that was a great reformed sermon. <laughs> Those words. Yeah. And Pe- I, people have said that to me, Dave, about your sermons. Uh-huh. So. Um, uh, I don't say anything back like, well, no, I'm not reformed. I just kind of smile, and, and I know what they mean, but it also tells me that they probably don't understand what it means to be reformed or non-reformed if they think my sermon was reformed, <laughs> uh, though most reformed people would probably like it. So to me, um, a lot of it just comes down in the in the broad strokes to a view of God and how God relates to the world. That's where it began for me. I read some very uh, thought-provoking, mind-bending stuff on uh, the relationship of God to the world, began to see that I felt like that was the God I found in the Bible, a God who was in intimate relationship with his world, uh, to, uh, and that, that came out of his great love for creation and everything in it. He loves his world. He claims that he's going to fill all the earth with his glory. And then he puts his son, Jesus Christ, in that world as the full reflection of his glory. And that comes out of his great love for his creation and for his son. And so uh, for me, a starting point was just seeing the world, trying to see the world through God's eyes, seeing the way he cherished the world, the way he loves uh, those made in his image, and uh, wants them to respond by loving him and worshiping him. And uh, all of that be- made God become extremely attractive to me, and I felt like it was— 30 seconds. I felt like it was thoroughly consistent with what I was seeing in Scripture. And so for that reason, I have you know, kind of no turning back now. I'm not here because Greg might talk me out of my position or because I can talk Greg out of his, but because I really love the God I find in the Bible, find him worthy of all my worship, and that's tied to my view of this doctrine that we're talking about. Okay. Um, so now uh, you guys have set your positions um, and a little bit about um, what they are um, in terms of the reformed, non-reformed, um, and and so it seems like you guys are coming at this from uh, almost different uh, positions in terms of your starting points. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Um, and so, uh, Greg, we're going to turn it back to you um, and let you just kind of clarify this starting point because you and Dave have had many conversations offline. Um, so essentially, Dave is talking about the nature of God. Yeah. Um, and so we're going to just turn it back to you, Greg, and let you kind of roll with that for a little bit, give you a few minutes, and then um, go back and forth, let Dave go, and so on. So, Yeah, I think, Dave, one of the things that we'll find as we talk about this today, since we've had so many preview conversations on this, uh, in an email we had going over the weekend, you had said that your preference would be to start with the nature of God, which sounds really unspiritual of me to say, no, I don't want to start there. (laughs) I don't want to start with God. Um, I know what you mean. I think your point, and you can tell me uh, if this sounds fair, when it's your turn 35 minutes from now. No, just kidding. That... um, Wake me up if I do. (laughs) (laughs) That often your your, your understanding of the nature of God will determine uh, your theology on the sovereignty of God in Mm -hmm. the sinner's salvation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Understand that position. For me, I feel differently about that. And that is because I got to where I am through specific passages that used to frustrate me baffle me, confuse me. Uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11, obviously. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that. and I think we have a pretty good idea of our differences there. Um, Ephesians 1, Acts 13, 48. These passages I would come across that were troublesome to me because they sounded like God chose me on the basis of his grace alone. It, it, and I will admit... It seemed capricious, it seemed uh, random, and they were frustrating passages to me as a younger believer, and they almost disturbed me. So for me, working through those passages with 
friends and counsel and thinking about the issues of God's justice, thinking about the issue of God's mercy. For, for me, a turning point was when a, a friend of mine, who ironically is no longer a Calvinist, <laughs> isn't that interesting, my friend Tim, <laughs> who told me a few months ago he doesn't buy it anymore. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I think you know the guy I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, good guy. Uh, good guy. Love him. Strong guy is, has rejected Calvinism. Um, he told me at the university union at Towson University where we were students, you know, I was struggling with this. And he said, Dutcher, let me ask you a question. And he said, if, uh, if, if God – he basically asked, does the whole world deserve to be judged? And I said, of course. You know, I, my understanding of the doctrine of sin – Yes, yeah, so the world deserves to be judged. Uh, the, the portrait of humanity outside of Christ is one of lostness, um, one of need for redemption, etc. So, yeah, we were in agreement on that. And he said, so if God sent everybody to judgment, he would be just. And I said, yes. And he said, then why are you so bent out of shape if he chooses some to receive his grace? Because nobody's getting injustice. And I don't remember what I said, but it was the the proverbial pebble in my shoe that I felt everywhere I walked from that time forward. So I will admit with that premise, I started to think through the issues first generally without even looking at specific texts and thought, okay, um, those that don't come to Christ, that are not chosen from before the beginning of time, are not getting injustice. If I, if I accept that premise, which we can talk about today, they are getting justice. Um, and if the chosen, the elect, are getting grace, then in that economy, nobody is getting injustice. Unless I argue that it's unfair for God to grace some and not seconds. grace others, um, which was, I will admit, a real emotional struggle for me. Uh, but that was my path uh, to Calvinism. It was through specific texts that seemed to be saying that some people are chosen, some people are not. And in my understanding, the nature of God was was not what, what drove me to Calvinism. In other words, I didn't have a view of God where Calvinism was what I needed to make sense of it. It kind of worked in reverse, if you know what mm-hmm. I mean. Yeah. Dave? Well, um being an Old Testament guy, mm-hmm. which I tend to be, uh, and I taught Old Testament, so I found myself, uh, as I wrestled over the years with this issue and became uh, interested in trying to trace some theology from Genesis to Revelation that would make sense of all of this, mm-hmm. uh, I found in my conversations most people had not even thought about the issue in terms of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. It was a non-issue and yet for me, uh, the tenor of the Old Testament was extremely important to understand what we see in the Gospels and Acts and the Epistles. And um, the idea of election uh, originating with God choosing Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and choosing his descendants to bring blessing to all the nations uh, uh, began to reshape the way I thought about uh, the issue of election. I don't want to delve into election specifically now as much as to say I began – my point is I began to see uh, the Bible in a more holistic way and not just try to process this in terms of how does Paul convey how we get saved. I wanted to get a broader picture and see if there was consistency between Paul's writings, what the apostles what, – what Luke says in Acts and what the gospel accounts have to say. And I will say that I understand the justice issue, justice, mercy, grace. I understand all of that. <clears throat> but, and, but when I reacted to the guy who gave me the um, article by Pink on limited atonement, my response was, that is not fair. Mm-hmm. And uh, he immediately dismissed that as saying, well, what do we know about fairness? And why, do we, why are we going to impose our sense of fairness on God? And so over the years I wrestled with that, I became more convinced that it's a valid argument on my part to argue about the fairness of God, because all we have as a frame of reference is our own experience. Human beings universally will say, if you have the ability to help everyone and you only choose to help some, 
then that is contrary to the way we understand in our own experience that fairness works. And so, and I saw in the Old Testament in particular words like equity and taking the right path and all that kind of thing, that God invokes fairness and uh, equanimity and equity upon his people. And I concluded that was a reflection of his very character, that that's the way God operates as well. And so I felt like then I and I and I kind of wrote a paper on this uh, mm-hmm. to kind of uh, you know s- get my thoughts in order that this idea it's not so much an issue of justice but it is the fact that in our human experience we have no frame of reference to say choosing when you have that ability to help everyone and you say I'm only going to help some and the others have no help at all even though I could help all that that decision in itself flies in the face of what we as humans understand to be an equitable way to manage your affairs. Mm-hmm. So my that was uh, a part of my journey as well, but it came out of the Old Testament, really. My understanding of God's call of Abraham. 30 seconds. Uh, my understanding of what it meant for Israel to be in a covenant relationship with him. All of this from the Old Testament then, uh, became the package by which I then looked at the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no, good points, Dave. And I think one of the uh, the most frustrating aspects of many Calvinists, uh, myself included, I, I think I'm growing in this area. I hope I hope I'm growing in this area. Is a almost a quick arrogance when people bring up the fairness argument. Mm-hmm. It's like I, I know Calvinists that are salivating. Aha! You know, and mm-hmm. and, and sure. they're ready to basically denounce you as if, I mean, look, I would just say, and and when I did, wrote my book on Calvinism, I, I tried to say that that as we dialogue with people, particularly mm-hmm. even other Christians, you know, let's be honest about ourselves. Mm-hmm. We can become so persuaded of our own position yeah. that we almost have a Stepford wife. Yeah. You know, look, mm-hmm. that, no, it is fair because God, blah blah blah, mm-hmm. does this. I think it's a legitimate concern. Uh, I've had people tell me. Come on, if uh, your kindergarten teacher comes in uh, to a kindergarten classroom and hands out, you know, there's 20 kids and they have 10 lollipops and they give 10 kids lollipops, you could say, well, nobody thought they were getting a lollipop, so 10 people didn't. So, I said, yeah, it's a fair analogy. Mm-hmm. I would admit there's a shocking sense to mm-hmm. it. And what I would say, Dave, on that, as I thought through that, a couple of things helped me. Um, I still maintain this Calvinistic debate in most quarters and we'll come back to this, is more about what's at stake than the issue itself. Uh, and what I mean is what's at stake is the eternal destiny of individuals and how can you be lighthearted about something so serious um, because I think we accept election of some sort all the time. Um, you could argue that you know I, I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I was raised in the uh, Maryland suburbs by parents who were not divorced, was together. They paid for my college. They paid for everything I ever needed. I wasn't born in Cambodia, uh, you know, in abject poverty. I wasn't born in uh, some African nation that's ripped apart by civil war. Uh, Some people are born with uh, great health. I could, um, or great ability. You know, I think you would know, Dave, if you've seen me on the basketball court, Mm. if, if, (laughs) if, if I practiced every day for five years, I'd be a much better basketball player. But the NBA ain't ever knocking on my door, um, ever, uh, even though I could get better and better. So I feel, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, green eyes, bald, um, you know, uh, a propensity to be skinny, a propensity to be like me, um, <laughs> however these things are, that we have principles of what I would call predestinarian theology all over the place that we have no control over. And in essence, my concern is that it's not just the doctrine of election and salvation that raises this issue, this issue of fairness, that I think we're dealing with it all the time. I think, in my opinion, the reason this is such a heated issue is because, well, what's at stake here is not hair color or even something as important as where you're born or when you're born, but the eternal destiny of the human soul. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my response. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, do you... You think I'm right on that, or? Well, I think there's obviously there's validity to what you're saying. I think uh, it goes back again to how we view God, and of course uh, how we view humans as well. Uh, 
Uh, first of all, I would say that this idea of fairness is not something that I think emerges solely from our fallen nature. But I think because we're created in the image of God, there are ways that we think and that we operate even as unbelievers that reflect the fact that we are in God's image. And I think that this sense of fairness is very much uh, influenced by that. We don't see it in the animal kingdom. They kill randomly, it seems. They have no mercy on their young if they're hungry or whatever. None of that is fair. And uh, the male can have you know the whole lot of the females and fight off all the others. That's not fair. Why can't every male dog have one female dog kind <laughs> yeah, of thing? Yeah. So we see that in many parts of God's creation that fairness is not an issue. But for us as humans, it is. I think it's a reflection of the image of God in us and and therefore uh, is not simply a fabrication because we're sinful, which is what this guy told me. He said, basically, you know, our minds are so dark and we t- distort fairness and think God has to be fair like we think he should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that a larger issue here it, it comes with uh, not just the eternal destiny of people, but the eternal... Uh, future of the glory of God being on display, which to me is even more significant in one sense. The two are tied together. I'm not minimizing people who don't um, spend eternity with God. I just think there's a larger issue, and it really, to me, comes out of how we understand uh, the sovereignty of God, which I think you use the term, and so, you know, it's a good term. The problem is we assume a lot about that term, and yet everybody who uses it probably has a little bit different idea as to what it m- means for God to be sovereign. And uh, and so my take on sovereignty would be much different than your take, mm-hmm. and therefore uh, how God is working in salvation and in people's lives w- might look very differently because I understand the sovereignty of God in, in a significantly different way than you do probably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm going to... Uh, put you guys on the spot real quick um, because of our listeners and because we are trying to um, explain the nuances of um, what each of you believes in um, in this subject um, why don't you take a few um, few minutes and just explain Greg w- where do you come on the sovereignty of God how would you define that and then Dave how would you define that mm-hmm. sovereignty I mean wow what a big subject I think of it as God's right to rule in whatever way he chooses to. And the term doesn't get much usage today. I mean, it gets uh, usage occasionally. You'll hear like some UN speech about the sovereignty of nations or something like that. But I, that's a short definition. It doesn't exhaust it by any means. I'm just going to use it for conversational point. Mm-hmm. So in the standpoint of the sinner salvation, I think the issue uh, comes to the point, uh, well, there's, there's many, but one of them is um, – what is God's right to do with his creatures? Um, and I think in God's sovereignty, he has the right uh, to rule uh, in terms of our uh, our status before him, in terms of how we stand before him. And I think he has the right to leave rebellious sinners in their state of uh, rebellion. Uh, I, there's mystery there. I'll, I'll be the first to admit that that in God's sovereignty, he passes over some. Uh, now, on the human level, these are people that I would say want to be passed over, that do not have any interest in God. Uh, in John 3, you know, Jesus says, man loves darkness um, and hates the light, does not come into the light. I think it's interesting that that's, that's an emotive term. Man loves darkness. This isn't that man happens to be in this sort of a theoretical condition of darkness, but man actually has a passionate tunnel vision commitment to love his sin and love his darkness and hate the God who, who, who made them. Uh, so yes, on the face of it, God's right, uh, to leave them in that darkness makes us wince. I'll be the first to admit that. Um, but in terms of what he does to the sinner that he saves, um, he chooses uh, to impart saving grace uh, to uh, someone that he has chosen to receive it. Uh, for me, it's that simple. It's, uh, I, I think our friends on the, uh, the Reform podcast put up the Calvinism in seven words. We love because God first loved us. 
that uh, there is a group, you know, more numerous than the stars in the sky, sand on the seashore to take those Old Testament covenant promises that um, in God's lavish grace, he has chosen to be the recipients of his uh, salvation. Uh, and um, he has chosen them for reasons I, I don't know, other than to say it's only by your grace. He has the right to do so because he is sovereign. He has the right to pass over those that hate him because he is sovereign. Mm-hmm. Dave? Yeah, well, your, um, your opening definition I totally agree with. God's sovereignty is God's right to rule in any way he chooses. Mm-hmm. And so there's no dispute there. Um, I think the question is, what way did he choose to rule? Mm-hmm. How did he choose to rule? And so the outworking of his sovereignty uh, under my theological perspective would be very different than yours. I think for many, and I'm not saying this is necessarily true of you because I don't want to you know, speak for you, but I would say many that I speak with who hold the Reformed view approach sovereignty as omni-control. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the, um, to me, well-known statement by R.C. Sproul about the maverick molecule. If there's one molecule that is not doing the will of God ordained before the foundation of the world, if you don't believe that every molecule must do what God ordained it to do before the foundation of the world, you're an atheist. And when I heard him say that, I thought, wow, that just takes the air right out of me, man. That's just, <laughs> that's such an incredible statement to make. And, and by his definition, I would be an atheist. Uh, so I think that when we have to ask, what way in Scripture do we see God ruling? And uh, for me, then, it, uh, it's obvious to me that, to me, it's obvious maybe not to you, but to me, it seems obvious that God has chosen to uh, run his universe in a way that is very different than omni-control, mm-hmm. where he needs to have every molecule, atom, every thing we do uh, mapped out, which you may or may not believe that particular view, the, you know, the, the maverick molecule view, but whatever you believe, generally the Reformed view is God has determined all this before the foundation of the world. And my understanding as I read the Bible is, no, God has not done that. That he's running his universe, but he's running it the way he chooses, Mm -hmm. and the way he chooses is the way I see in the Bible, which is a God who has chosen to uh, impose limitations upon the way he operates to accomplish his larger purposes. So not just in the incarnation of Jesus, where he laid aside the independent use of some of his attributes during 33 years on earth, but even in the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, I see a God who has chosen to limit the way he operates for the purpose of accomplishing his larger purposes, and yet he's still sovereign. His ultimate purposes and objectives will be accomplished. He will not be ultimately thwarted, even though not all of his will is done now. And so there are things that God really loves and and that are consistent with his nature, but they're not happening now. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is a world where God has allowed uh, the prince of darkness to have uh, a large measure of authority— He's, uh, God has permitted that to happen. He's allowed humans to have an invested stake in what goes on in space and time, and yet he's sovereign over the bigger picture and will accomplish his purposes. I don't know, Nathan, if that sticks out as kind of a contrasting view. Hopefully, you know, that, that helps to see uh, the difference in how we approach this issue. Yeah, um, so Greg. Well, to, to get at that, Dave, just to ask you, and I'm, I'm really just asking the I don't think I really disagree with anything that you've said. I mean, I will say even among Calvinists, there is an intramural debate on, uh, I think the fancy term is meticulous providence, mm-hmm. you know, or I think what you call it, omni-control. Uh, quick book recommendation. I, I think we talked about this book once. There's a wonderful kind of unsung book uh, of 10 or 15 years ago now called Prayer and Providence by Terence Thiessen, mm-hmm. um, which is an excellent book. It, it basically goes through about 15 models that uh, range from an extreme free will, open view, theism kind of position to a hyper-meticulous providence. And it lays out about 15 mediating positions in between. 
And I think Thiessen and ended up somewhere where, well, he probably helped me end up there called Calvinist Middle Knowledge. I'm geeking out, and mm-hmm. I'm not going to spend much more time on that because I know we're going to confine our comments to the, you know, the, the individual election of people. We haven't even gotten into corporate election yet. I know mm-hmm. we, we will probably maybe even in part two. Um, I'm wondering, Dave, if outside of that, because um, I think I would take some issues with the way Sproul defines that. Uh, but again, I think that's intramural among some Calvinists. Um, does are you saying that when God limits His power, authority, the exercise of attributes, whatever the right term is, that salvation, the individual salvation of an individual human sinner, is an area where He would leave that, for lack of a better term, to the choice of the sinner? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say he – well, I would say if he did, this might take us to a new area, that nobody would become a Christian. I maintain that because the the portrait of man as I read it in Scripture is – and I'm not going to use Ephesians 2.1, Dave. Um, for, for, yeah, for reasons, you know, the spiritual death verse, which I – well, I will say that. One of the things Dave helped me with, Nathan, years ago mm-hmm. was – I remember we were at the double T and he said – are, do Calvinists put too much into the Ephesians 2.1, we're spiritually dead picture? And I, you know what? I, I think we probably do. I can see how a non-reformed guy could say, yeah, I believe man's spiritually dead. I think we might mean different things by that. But normally the Calvinist preacher will rail on the, he's like Lazarus. He can't do this. He can't do that. Now, the mm-hmm. irony is I do think that, but not necessarily mm-hmm. from Ephesians 2.1. I look at John 3, which I mentioned, that man loves darkness. And I see that as axiomatic. I see that as a, as a, a description of mankind universally, um, that man loves darkness. So that uh, a friend of mine used uh, an analogy uh, that, I, that I liked years ago. is it's, Even if you, quote unquote, free will, if it exists in the sinner, which I think we'll get to as well, if you have a snake and you have a basket of fresh fruit in one corner and a basket of live mice in the other, uh, and you let a snake go at you know into that room, look at both baskets, that he will choose the live mice 100 times out of 100. He's free to choose either, but he will choose according to his nature. So I see that the nature of man, for me, Dave, this is what probably catapulted me into Calvinism, is I, I always wrestled on a personal level, why did I choose Christ? My brother is smarter than I am. Anybody that meets him knows that. He was the valedictorian. I wasn't. Um, why did I, who have heard the same message, choose Christ as my Savior? This is how I would, would think of. Particularly in light of the universality of sin, the way it's wrecked us, the way it has bent our inclination towards self, uh, anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-gospel, anti-kingdom, I don't see how anybody would choose to embrace the free offer of the gospel unless God does a work in the human heart, which I think is regeneration. Um, you know, John 3, a uh, man must be born again uh, to even see, let alone enter the kingdom of God. Second uh, 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 Corinthians 4 uh, you know, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. What's the solution to that? To be bl- we're entirely passive in that passage. Uh, we're active in other passages. <laughs> I want to say that they believing, repenting, etc. Um, I see that God has to throw the switch in order for us to even find the gospel attractive. So that's what I would say to that. Mm-hmm. Dave, I'm going to give you um, some time to respond to that. And then um, we're actually moving along very quickly in our time. So before we wrap up, I want to nail on something that Dave talked about earlier, and that was looking at the entire Bible. Sure. Um, because I know, Greg, you've talked about this. Um, and so I want you two to both give your positions because I don't think, Greg, you pull strictly from the New Testament in this Reformed view. And right. Greg, you, or, uh, Dave, you touched on that, mm-hmm. that you, know, you, you looked at the whole um, scope of the Bible and have come to the determination that free will is how God chooses to work. Um, And I know, Greg, you've looked through the Old Testament, and you've come to the determination that God chooses to work through election. So, um, Dave, I want to give you some time to respond to 
uh, Greg, and then we're going to talk about uh, the Bible mm-hmm. in a, as a whole. Well, uh, as is always the case, um, there's a lot that you've said that to commend itself, um, and uh, I don't necessarily totally agree or disagree. Excuse me. <laughs> Or agree. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I don't necessarily totally disagree with what you said. Uh, I think that your point about Ephesians 2 and the dead man in the casket who can do nothing is a limited metaphor. Mm-hmm. It's a good metaphor, but it certainly doesn't give us the full picture of how the Bible portrays the unbeliever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that there's not enough talk about how uh, there are other pictures. We are created in the image of God. So uh, when Romans 3 says there's none that seek after him, there it, that's a principle, but that's not the total defining picture of the unbeliever. Uh, it might be better said unbelievers seek after God. They just don't know how to find him or don't want to find him because they want to find a different God. Mm-hmm something that meets their standards. But nevertheless, uh, there is a hunger in the human heart for something more. And so humans are on a quest, and um, we're on a quest for something that unbelievers have not found, which is odd. How can you long for something that you've never experienced? Mm -hmm. Like C.S. Lewis said, it's like you know the fish marveling Mm -hmm. at how wet the water is for us to be longing for something that we've never experienced. And and so I think there's a broader picture of the unbeliever, that the unbeliever can seek God. And, you know, and the classic to me is Acts 17, where mm-hmm. Paul speaks on Mars Hill to these pagan idolatrous philosophers and says, you know, God has been at work in human history, placing people strategically and defining the boundaries of where they're supposed to live. Why did he do all this? Because he wanted people to find him. And so those those decisions and actions that God took were with a uh, a salvific uh, salvation oriented perspective that he says if perhaps they might grope after him and might find him mm-hmm. the mood there in Acts 17 where he says that is what's called the optative I know I'm sounding nerdy now but it means it's it's less likely mm-hmm. that that will happen but nevertheless Paul seems to be commending these pagan philosophers because they're moving in a direction that he considers positive. You're looking for God, got this unknown God, great. Rather than slapping them in the face and saying, what a bunch of idiots to have all these idols, (laughs) he he affirms that they are doing something constructive, and then he says, now let me explain to you who that unknown God is. So I think that I would really broaden the model of who the unbeliever is. Now, you uh, said earlier that um, uh, to the question, why, was every, why wasn't everyone chosen? You said you don't know, mm-hmm. you know which I, I appreciate. I would say, uh, why do some believe and some don't? And I would say to that question, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the Bible answers that question. Mm-hmm. But I think it's the, it's the desire to have an answer to that question that is so moving in the hearts of people that we want to answer that question. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can think of someone right now that you know who has not trusted in Christ, mm-hmm. and you have. Why did I? Why didn't they? And, and, and we want to make sense of that. That's a great thing, that we want to make sense of that. The danger is trying to make sense of it by putting together a, an explanation that is not necessarily consistent with Scripture. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's, what I see of the Reformed position, is that the whole doctrine of election is an attempt to answer a question that the Bible doesn't answer. Interesting. Yeah. So I do find a place, Nathan, where we both put some mystery. Yeah. They're just mm-hmm. in different places. Sure. Right. Yeah. Like, I, you're right. I would put the mystery on, why didn't God choose everybody? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and in my view, Dave, I think the Bible does give clear answers to how a person becomes a Christian uh-huh. from a God sovereignty perspective, you would say that's more your mystery. Yeah. Why a person believes when another person doesn't. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't find mystery where I would from the standpoint of choice because it fair you don't believe in well, I know you believe in an in an elect. But it's a totally different elect yes. view yes. than yours. Yeah, because yeah, I do want to talk corporate individual yeah. mm-hmm. at, at at some point, but yeah. May I, if I may say, Dave, I think the Bible does say why we're in 
Christ, I think I think of uh, I should have this verse. So I ask you to help, Dave. Where um, I'm not going to help you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, is it First Corinthians one thirty, Second Corinthians? It's a thirty, I think. Where it says, uh, well, the NAS rendering is, by his doing, we are in Christ Jesus. Um, I'll look at that and mm-hmm. come back to it in part two sure. when we take a restroom break. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also say, Dave, it's uh, Philippians. Um, I'll look this one up. I think it's Philippians one twenty-five. It's somewhere around there. As I, uh, This is riveting podcasting when I'm turning <laughs> That's right. in my Bible. And, what are you uh, looking for? Yeah, is uh, is Philippians, Dave, uh, Old Testament or New Testament? Oh, wait, no. <laughs> that would ruin my credibility. Philippians 1, uh, it's 29, where Paul says, For it has been granted to you, he's talking to the church at Philippi, for the sake of Christ, uh, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So I see there the idea of it's been granted to you not only to believe. Now, Paul's main point is to get the suffering. I realize that. That's his emphasis. Mm-hmm. But he also says it's been granted to you to believe. So I think the scripture tells us that God's sovereignty is not just in the objective events of the gospel. And what I say by that is I mean God sending his son, Christ living his perfect life, dying of a carious substitutionary death on the cross, uh, being buried, uh, rising from the dead, ascending into heaven. I mean, those are kind of the objective outside of us facts of the gospel uh so that you would agree i know dave we've talked about that when the bible says for by grace you've been saved this undeserved favor uh i think we both agree that in terms of the external objective historical events that's all god's grace i i think we might get a new murkier waters on the subjective side how do i for lack of a better word get in on those benefits Mm -hmm. I think the Bible is clear. I get in on those benefits because he puts me in Christ. Mm-hmm. He lifts me, as it were, places me in Christ. Um, I think, too, Dave, the other passage that, that I often think of is in John 1, um, which I love because I think it gives both sides. It gives the human perspective. And you tell me, Dave, I'll read this and tell me if you think I'm, I'm reading this right. Uh, I can tell you ahead of time you're not. (laughs) Why do I even bother saying that? I I know what Dave thinks, but for the sake of the listener, you know, John 1.12, famous verse. Uh, How how does a person uh, get saved? Well, John 1.12 says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So I think that's the view on the human level. Uh, Oh, I look at that person, and that person believes and receives Jesus Christ as Savior. Mm -hmm. Uh, and everybody would agree on that. Then I think verse 13, in my opinion, gives the invisible, behind the scenes, for lack of a better word, design per, or uh, sovereignty of God perspective, uh, those children who were born not of blood, I take that to mean, um, you know, Lisa and I had four kids. They're not automatically Christians, um, you know, through physical descent, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man which I take to mean the person who actually believes did not will himself to believe Uh, or somebody else. I can't will my kids to believe. I don't think I can will myself or will anybody else, but born of God. So I take that verse, Dave, in my view, to be a very clear teaching that there's, there's mystery right in that verse. We believe, we receive, but behind that, through that, in Mm -hmm. that, it's not our will that's doing it. It's God working in us. And I, I would say that I think both the Philippians 1 and John 1 passage can be seen very differently. Okay. That is, when, <clears throat> when Philippians 1 says it's been given to you to believe, we don't have to understand that to mean that God has given us faith, but he has granted to us a calling, a privilege to trust Christ and to suffer for him. Not that he gives us the faith to do it, but we are we are welcomed into the arena that Philippians 1 develops of the gospel and of trusting in Christ. And the same thing in John 1, he gives us the authority to become the sons of God. Why? Because we've trusted in him. But in neither case would I say that that automatically has to be understood as a deterministic uh, uh, action on God's part, that he decided who would believe and who would have authority. 
All right. Um, so what we're going to do now is I want to give you guys a few minutes, um, and, uh, and I'm putting you on the spot here, so I hope you're ready. Uh-oh. Um, Greg, I'm going to start with you. Oh, Since no. Dave's the guest, I'm going to give him the, uh, the uh, upper hand here. Um, I want you to think of three verses. Okay. One from uh, the, New Tes- the, the Old Testament, one from the middle of the Bible, somewhere you know, in later passages, later in time, and then one toward the end in the New Testament, okay. where, where you believe that, again, and this is just very general, I'm asking you to pick three verses, and I know you could pick so many more, but where you see the Bible just connects this idea of, of God's sovereignty the way you view it. Sure, sure. Um, well, let me start with... Um let me see which one from the Old Testament. Is. Maccabees. Yeah, I'm going to take. Uh, I'm going to take the book of Second Procrastination. <laughs> the Assumption of Moses. Yeah. <laughs> the Assumption of Doctor. Um, yeah. Let me let me state obviously that I I think when we look at the Old Testament, I, I and I do want to talk more about that. I mean, the Old Testament. We're not going to find a passage about first century post. Um, gospel preaching you know i mean we're, we're not right. going to find that we might find uh you know types and anti-types and, and that whole kind of conversation but the principle of election I, I will say this let me reveal my cards this came out in a previous podcast i don't even know if dave and i w- would see this i see the nation of israel as a um <laughs> for lack of a better word a a preview of the church mm-hmm. i am uh if you had to pin me down i would say i'm probably a a new covenant guy on these dispensational um, covenant theology, for lack of a better word, new covenant theology. So I believe that uh, there is a visible, external, uh, demarcated people of God in the Old Testament called national ethnic Israel. I believe in the New Testament there is a visibly demarcated group called the the, the church. You know, that is visibly seen, it's gathered, just like Israel was. Obviously, there's differences there. Uh, so I know that's a, a big step. So that's my little caveat to look at a passage like uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7. So my point is that there are Israelites who are not saved, um, but they are part of the, um, the chosen nation. So I look at a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God says uh, in verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So the reason I emphasize that is I agree, this is about Israel. And I would say, Dave, this is a corporate election passage. But we have a distinction made here. They are chosen out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God didn't choose Egypt, doesn't choose Moab, doesn't choose Edom. He chooses Israel. And then verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has, has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Uh, know therefore that the Lord your God uh, is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And I hate to say etc. etc. when it's God's word, but <laughs> I'm not going to read the entire book of Deuteronomy. So I see in Deuteronomy 7 God choosing one out of others, uh, that there is a distinction made. Now I would say, well, why didn't God choose Egypt? As his, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Why uh, didn't he choose uh, Moab? I don't know. He chose Israel. And the only reason God gives is because he loved them. It's a hard one. Mm-hmm. Because does God not love all the peoples of the world? I would answer and say he, he does. But I think there is a distinct love for his own people. Mm-hmm. So I, I see that as a foundational passage in moving into the New Testament. Um, uh, Dave, you're going to have to help me with a reference, but it's in... Matthew and Mark, I believe, uh, where Jesus says uh, that many are called, but few are chosen. You know what reference that is? Is that in the, um, I'm thinking the first shall be last, last shall be first. Uh, yeah. Well, we've got all these fancy, uh, fancy devices know, here right? <laughs> as, as my pastoral Bible knowledge is being exposed, and, but and I feel the people better. people in the podcast are just the, holding uh, on to the. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's Matthew twenty four twenty five where oh, where we have the uh, wedding feast invitation. 
Yeah. And the ones who are invited don't come. So they go out and find others. And then he says, many are called and few are chosen. Very close, Dave. Matthew 22. 22. Very, very yeah. good. Very impressive. Uh, so Matthew 22, verse 14. Um, yeah, many are called, few are chosen. Um, which, uh, to me, I see very much as a, a picture of a general call that the, the gospel is to go out into the whole world. Uh, I love Spurgeon's take on that. We just don't know who the elect are. God doesn't want us to know who they are. So we are free to love people indiscriminately and preach the gospel indiscriminately. So missions, which I know is, is my friend Dave's heart, and it just beats strong for world missions. He's an exemplary man in that arena. He's devoted his uh, what could be his retired years to helping churches like our own. Uh, think through this, because, I mean, Dave, what are you now, Dave, 87, 80, somewhere in that ballpark? Birthday tomorrow. Hey, how about that, Dave? <laughs> Happy, Happy birthday. birthday. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, so I, I see a general call that goes out, and I see what, what theologians have called an efficacious call, one that actually works to bring the person to saving faith. Again, I maintain that's because the, uh, the general call uh, is not enough. Uh, to bring a person to salvation. And then my last one is Acts 13.48, which Dave was probably expecting. Um, Even F.F. Bruce, Dave, I was looking at this over the weekend, who was not a Reformed guy. He he misses the point on that verse. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, even Uh, F.F. Bruce would say, I cannot tone down the predestinarian tones in this passage. But, but I can. Yeah. <laughs> and F.F. Bruce is in glory now, isn't right, he? Yeah. So, so we, we don't know what he would say now, but um, that is, uh, of course, a context, first missionary journey, uh, Acts chapter 13. Let me just get to the verse. It says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, uh, you you would expect from a non-Calvinistic standpoint uh, that text to perhaps say something like as many who believed had been appointed to eternal life or something like that um, so that we've in a sense got the is, is it the cart going before the horse uh, vice versa but I see there a clear statement that there is a certain number that were appointed to eternal life and those pre-appointed people believed. So those are my three passages. Um, So Dave, I'm going to let you uh, give your three Mm -hmm. passages. um, And then what we're going to do is we're going to end the podcast. Um, We're not going to end in the usual way because this is part one and part two. Um, So Dave, go ahead and give yours. And then we will come back uh, for part two next week for the viewers in a few minutes for us yes, um, and, and, and get that underway. So Dave, how, go ahead. How many minutes do I have? Uh, just go ahead and, and however many you need to, okay. to give your three verses. I would say Dave, a 90 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would start with Deuteronomy also, uh, Deuteronomy four. Uh, I think I would totally disagree with your take on Deuteronomy. I don't think the election in Deuteronomy has anything to do with anybody getting saved at all, nor do I think in Matthew 22 it relates to salvation either. Uh, The the election of Israel was not for people to be saved. It was an election based on Genesis 12 and God's determination that he would have a body of people who would carry blessing to all the families of the earth. And so he elected Abraham and his descendants to do that. So in Deuteronomy 4.37, you have uh, a statement of God's elective love, and that uh, the language of love and hate is very Deuteronomic, and when I use the word Deuteronomic, it simply means it's the language that the writer of Deuteronomy and those who are of the school of thought of the writer of Deuteronomy would have. Uh, that love and hate uh, do not have anything directly to do with salvation, but have to do with embracing the covenant that God established for Israel to take blessing to all the families of the earth, so that Israel is not elected to salvation. Israel is elected to mission. And so the electing and choosing in Deuteronomy, wherever you see it, uh, is for mission. There is no elective election to salvation anywhere in the Old Testament that I can find. Every election is for service or mission to a task God has called people to. 
So Deuteronomy 4.37 would be a great example of that. I can use Acts 13.48 to defend my position, uh, and I'm not sure that I have the time to do that, but I would simply say that in verse 46 of Acts 13, Paul says to the Jews, you judge yourselves uh, not worthy of eternal life. In verse 48, he speaks of Gentiles getting eternal life. Now, uh, if you take that uh, participle, uh, appointed, or whatever, however you want to translate that word in verse 48, the many who were appointed to, uh, uh, they believed who were appointed to eternal life, uh, you can take that as a passive participle or a middle participle, and that simply means they did it to themselves. Well, in verse 46, the Jews made a decision about themselves. We have made a judgment in Paul's words, that we do not consider ourselves worthy of eternal life. The Gentiles, in verse 48, made a decision that they would believe and they would put themselves in a position of receiving eternal life. So uh, that context is very Jew-Gentile. The Jews are rejecting eternal life. The Gentiles are embracing it. And I wouldn't see that as deterministic at all in verse 48, but we can come back to that after the break if you want. Uh, Then I could use Romans 9, (laughs) I mean, surprisingly, to defend my position, which is Deuteronomic. God hated Esau. What in the world does that mean? He loved Jacob and hated Esau. That's the language of Deuteronomy. God made a decision both with Isaac and Jacob that the blessing that would come to all the families of the earth would not go through Ishmael, or Esau, but would go through uh, Isaac and Jacob. Interestingly enough, Ishmael gets a lot of blessing in Genesis, but he's not in the line that would produce the seed of the woman and ultimately usher in blessing to all the families of the earth. Nor is Esau, but it's Isaac and Jacob. And uh, so that's not salvation. He's not talking about who gets saved in Romans 9. He's talking about how God will carry out the mission initiated in Genesis 12 to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. All right. So we're going to go ahead and we are going to um, sign off for now. Um, you, uh, our, our normal ending, we just rocked the Casbah. We're going to put on hold until next week uh, because we've, we are not done. We've almost rocked we, the Casbah. We've half rocked it. That's right. Um, now the so, question is which one, did Dave or I do the other half? We're going to have to wait for the uh, viewers to, to post in on that one. Wait, wait, viewers? Nobody's watching. Listeners. Oh, listeners. Listeners. Trust me, nobody... Uh, well, the way you guys are acting in here, yeah. you feel like you'd think we had viewers the way, you know, you're... We're so... You're, and we're like Italians. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, so, yeah, we're just going to go ahead and sign off, and we'll, we'll see you all next week.